Today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of what traditionally we call Holy Week. It is the day we celebrate or we recognize the day Jesus entered into Jerusalem with much fanfare. This week begins with Jesus arriving in Jerusalem during the Passover. The event is so important, it's one of the few events recorded in all four gospel accounts. His arrival in Jerusalem sets in motion events that will lead to his crucifixion. Jesus will now fulfill what John the Baptist predicted about him when he proclaimed Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. The plan of redemption was set in motion in Genesis and it is now about to come to completion for all to see. And in this triumphal entry, we see Jesus for the first time in the gospel accounts as the king. Mark chapter 11, verse 1, page 772 in your pew Bible. I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found the colt tied at the door outside the street. And they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them, just as Jesus had said, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus, put their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the field. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem, came in the temple area, and after looking around at everything, he left Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. The title of the message this morning is King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have today to gather, to sing your praise, to study your word, to cry out to you, Lord, on behalf of our community. To know that you hear and you care. Father, you you care about all 13,798 people in our community. Father, you have placed our church at this address for your sovereign purposes. Lord, we're not here by accident. We're not here by random chance and circumstance. We are here by divine design. You intend... On our church being a part of the way you reach out to redeem Gaiman and to see it one for Christ. So God, we we choose to be a part of your mission today. We surrender to you. Give us opportunities this week to invite the 54% who don't go to church to come on Easter Sunday. And Lord, as the opportunities arise, give us the courage to take them and let us invite them. And let them come. And let them hear the good news of great joy that a Savior has come. And let them be born again. But Lord, before we get to Easter, we're, we're here today. We're looking at Jesus riding into Jerusalem, declaring himself to be the king. Father, we need to see Jesus as our king. 
we need to understand that that Jesus, while he is a savior, thank you, Lord. He is the king over kings, the Lord over lords. And he is the one who deserves our absolute devotion. And in reality, we are either fully devoted disciples of Jesus or we are rebels against King Jesus. There is nothing in between. Open our eyes to this fact today. Draw us closer to King Jesus. Draw us to live more faithfully for King Jesus. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. And use, use this word, use your word as a sword to bring deep and abiding conviction to bring people to repentance today. Use your word as a hammer to smash strongholds we have erected in our minds so that our thoughts would be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Use your word as a light to dispel the darkness in our minds so that we would see the glory of King Jesus and be saved. Use your word as a plow and plow up the hard ground of our heart and take the word and put it deep in our heart and let it bear good fruit for your glory that testifies that there is a God who redeems and a God who saves and a God who changes. Have your way in every heart and in every person that's gathered here today. We ask in the mighty name of King Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. triumphal entry of Jesus is a bold declaration of his kingship. Jesus did not come to Jerusalem to be made a king. He was already a king. He came triumphantly into Jerusalem to display the fact he was the king. Yes, he was going by way of the cross to receive his kingdom, but he was a king already. So what kind of king is King Jesus? Well, Jesus is the king who fulfills God's word. So everything about what Jesus does in this passage is about him going public with his identity as King Jesus. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts, you know, Jesus never made any sort of public display over anything he had done in his ministry. Always before he had done things for people and then he told them, don't go tell everyone what I've done for you. Or if he was beginning to draw too much attention from the crowds, he would move away from them and and get alone. But not this time. This time, Jesus intentionally drew attention to himself by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, to us, we may think, how does that draw attention to himself? How is that saying he is King Jesus? Well, to understand why Jesus chose a donkey to ride into town and to show he was king, we we have to go back into time. We have to go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. And he placed them in a paradise called the Garden of Eden. And they were to tend it and to keep it and to have a, a perfect communion with God in this place. And they had... All of this purpose and all of this relationship and there was no sin, there was no shame. And they were allowed to eat freely of every tree in the garden. There was only one tree that was forbidden for them. 
And it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, for a period of time, we don't know how long, things went well. But then the enemy comes along to disrupt and destroy as he always does. And he comes to Eve and Adam as they're there by that tree. And he casts doubt on God's word. Has God really said? Then he contradicted God's word because Eve said, yes, God said we shall not eat it nor touch it or we will die. Satan contradicted God's word. You will not surely die. And then he challenged God's character for God knows that in the day you eat of the tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's keeping you from something good. God's not looking out for your best. God is holding you back. Keeping you from experiencing all of your life that you were meant to meant to experience. Adam and Eve, like most people in our culture today, believed the devil's lies. And they ate the fruit that God had forbidden them from eating. This disobedience had horrific consequences for humanity and creation. Everything about creation became broken. The relationship between God and man was severed. When God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid from God as they had never done before. The relationship between man and woman became one of blame and disunity. God said to Adam, what have you done? Adam said, it's the woman that you gave me, by the way. God, she's the one who did it. Creation itself was cursed. It would now bear thorns and thistles instead of all the things that God had intended for it. Humanity died spiritually. And because they were dead spiritually, they were born in rebellion against God and they were born separated from God. Humanity, physical and spiritual death, both entered the world. People began to die physically, which was not a part of God's original creation. Humanity now walks a course of rebellion against God, marked out by Satan himself, according to Ephesians 2.2. The natural state of humanity is now that is children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. Humans are naturally blinded by Satan to their need for Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4 The entire world, the entire world is under the sway of Satan. 1 John 5.19 Humanity struggles against evil spiritual forces. Ephesians 6.12 And Satan roams the earth freely seeking someone to devour and destroy. 1 Peter 5.8 In short, God's original purpose For earth and humanity was short-circuited. The creation that God had declared to be very good was no longer very good. But God, who is good, was not content to leave humanity in this condition. And so he came seeking Adam. Adam, where are you? We should never get over that part. God did not stay in heaven and wait for Adam to come to his senses and seek him. God came seeking Adam. God did not wait for you and I to come to our senses and come to Him. He came seeking us. If there has ever been a desire in our heart for the Lord Jesus Christ, it is first originated with Him. He came seeking us. Never once in our life have we ever gone seeking Him. He always started the process. God calls Adam and Eve on the carpet. God calls the serpent on the carpet. In the promise of this, He gives a... 
Or in the context of this, he gives a promise of a Savior who would one day come and provide salvation to the world. The serpent would strike the Savior's heel and the Savior would crush the serpent's head. The Savior would come and he would destroy the serpent's power and eventually the serpent himself. He would do this to reconcile men or humanity to God and restore God's original plan for creation. Now, the Old Testament saints didn't fully understand all that God meant with this statement. They just knew it was going to happen. And from that moment on, God's word tells us about the people God chose to bring the Redeemer into the world. God begins to give us pictures of what this this Messiah, this Redeemer would be like. And you may be wondering at this point, okay, what does that have to do with Jesus riding on a donkey? One of the prophecies... One of the pictures about the coming Messiah is found in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Even the colt, the fowl, foal of a donkey. Jesus intentionally fulfilled this prophecy to the letter. Because he was the promised king. All of creation had been waiting for the birth and the coming of Christ. Now, this wasn't the only prophecy Jesus fulfilled. If it was, if anybody could have got on a donkey, rode into town and been like, huzzah, I'm the king. This isn't the only promise and the only prophecy Jesus fulfilled. We don't have time to do a long, detailed list. We could spend a year easily just looking at the prophecies and the fulfillments of Jesus. Here is just a few. He would be born the seed of a woman, Genesis 3.15, Galatians 4.4. He would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14, the fulfillment, Matthew 1.18-23. He would provide light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 9.1 and 2. He fulfilled that in Matthew 4.12-16. He would have a ministry of miracles, Isaiah 35.5-6, fulfilled many places, but Matthew 11.4-5. He would suffer, bleed, and die, Isaiah uh, 52, 13 through 53, 12, fulfilled Mark 15, which we'll look at next week. He would rise again, Psalm 16 and 10. Uh, of course, every gospel tells about him rising again. Luke 24, 1 through 8, Acts 2, 25 through 33 makes it explicit. He would make a new covenant between God and man. Jeremiah 33, 31, 31 through 33, fulfilled Luke 22, 17 through 20, Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. There's many, many more we could look at. This is enough to show that Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the king who fulfilled God's word. Since Jesus is the king, since he is the king who fulfilled God's word, Jesus is also the king who brings salvation. As he rides into town on the donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of the coming king, all eyes are upon him. As all eyes are upon him, they recognize what he's doing. Remember, Jesus has caused a stir by this point. He has healed the lame. He has cleansed lepers. He has raised the dead. He has even caused the blind to see something which no one had ever done prior to him. So all people are kind of watching him, beholding him, seeing what he's going to do. And as he Rides into town. Everybody sees him riding on the donkey. They recognize what he's doing. And they begin to worship him. It says in verse 7, they they brought the colt and put their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road. Um, 
Some place their clothing on the donkey as a saddle. Others fling their clothes on the ground as a gesture of reverence. One of my commentaries said this indicated their willingness for him to have everything in their lives, even to trample their property if he so desired, because he was the king. It said they spread leafy branches, which they had cut from fields. And those who went in front and those who followed him were shouting. They, they spread the palm branches before him as he went. Now, the palm branches doesn't probably doesn't mean much to us. But to this people, this was a significant meaning. The palm branches represented, this is one of my commentaries, their natural, their nationalistic desire to be delivered. For when Simon Maccabeus delivered Jerusalem 150 years earlier, it was celebrated with praise, palm branches, and musical instruments. The palm frond was the symbol of the second Maccabean revolt. The palm branches coupled with their praise paint an interesting picture of what they wanted. In verse 9, it, it tells us that some went in front and those followed. And they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Get the scene in your head. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. People see him. And so they come and they start throwing their branches and the clothing before him. Some are, are leading him. Others are following behind him. And as they lead and as they follow, they're shouting praises to Jesus. But it reads, the way they're doing it, it's not chaos like we might imagine. Instead, it reads as a, a call and response. Those in the front would shout, Hosanna! And the people in the back would say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The people in the front would then shout, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save or save us. They wanted Salvation from Jesus. But here's the problem. When you couple what they're saying with the palm branches, what you have is a group of people who are calling on Jesus to save them from the Romans. Their view of the Messiah is he will come in power and cast off Roman oppressors and set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. Yes, they wanted Jesus to save them. But they wanted a nationalistic salvation and earthly salvation. They had no concept of the spiritual salvation Jesus came to bring. The salvation Jesus came to bring is greater than the salvation they wanted. It's the same in our day. Many in our day want a Savior who saved them from the problems of life. They want a Savior who will save them from their marriage problems. They want a Savior who will save them from their money problems. They want a Savior who will save them from their health problems. They want a Savior who will save them from discomfort. They want a Savior who will save them from some earthly thing. But they don't want a Savior who will save them in the way Jesus came to save them. Now, Jesus can save us from all these things. And he often does save us from all of these things. But the salvation Jesus came to bring is far greater than any of these things individually or all of these things combined. Jesus came to save us from the penalty of sin. Think about that. God's word teaches all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Now this is a problem because the wages of sin is death. 
Through sin, each and every one of us have earned the wage of death. But the death it's talking about is not merely physical death or or spiritual death. It is condemnation, eternal condemnation. And the second death, which is being cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. This is the earned Wage of sin. And this is what we all deserve. What we have all earned through our lives and the things we have done and the ways we have rebelled against King Jesus. And there is nothing we can do in our own strength and our own power and our own goodness to get out from underneath the wage of sin. But thankfully, King Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. There is therefore... Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who genuinely repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are are free, forever free from condemnation. They will not ever be judged as a sinner. I, I love this verse. There is now no condemnation, not some future version of us that gets it all squared away. Those who repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are instantly and immediately freed from all condemnation. Does this mean that the genuine believer in Christ never sins? Sadly, it's not what it means. We do struggle and we will always struggle against the pull of the world, the flesh and the devil. Our sinful nature will always struggle against the spirit of God within us for control of our lives. Hopefully we will win this more than we lose the battle. But there will be times where we will lose the struggle and we will sin. Here's the question. Does that moment of sin, does it take a believer in Christ from being free of condemnation and put them back under condemnation? The answer is no. No, it does not. 1 John 2, 1. All these things are written that you may not sin. That's the standard. But when you sin, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. In that moment when we sin, it's serious. It's it's a real thing. We have made a terrible mistake. But in that moment, King Jesus is our advocate. King Jesus is our defense attorney. King Jesus stands in our place and he says, yes, they sinned. Yes, they have failed. Yes, they have done terrible things. But my blood covers them. My sacrifice takes away their condemnation. They are free, forever free because of what I have done. We try to invite people for next week. Let's remember this. It doesn't matter the life they are living, the life they have lived or anything else. Jesus can completely save them from the penalty of sin. But not just those out there. Listen, I don't know the spiritual condition of everyone in here today. There may well be some in here today that have never genuinely repented, never genuinely believed. And if that's you, I want you to know that Jesus can save you from the penalty of sin as well. And there can be no condemnation for you, but only because of Christ. This is it. This, I don't have time to get into this, but 
This is it. People can be freed from condemnation, the penalty, only because of Jesus. They can't be freed from the penalty of sin because they turn over a new leaf. They can't be freed from the penalty of sin because they become religious. They can't be freed from the penalty of sin because they get in the water and be baptized. They can't be freed from the penalty of sin because they come to the altar and pray a prayer. They can only be freed from the penalty of sin because of Jesus Christ and what He has done on the cross. And any person, anywhere in the world that is trusting on anything other than Jesus to free them from the penalty of sin is still under the wrath of sin. They are not saved. Any person, anywhere that believes they had any part in their salvation, that it's anything they've done, any good deeds, any good works, any moral effort they've put forward, those people are not saved. They must repent and they must believe. For Jesus alone has the power to save people from the penalty of sin. Jesus doesn't just save us from the penalty of sin. Jesus saves us from the power of sin. The punishment of sin, but the power of sin. Now, this is incredibly important for us to get. We still struggle with our sinful nature. The difference between prior to coming to Jesus and after coming to Jesus isn't that the struggle is gone. It's that we now have the ability not to sin. Prior to coming to Jesus, we were slaves to our sinful nature. That's what the Bible says. But after we came to Jesus, after He saved us, we are not only freed from the the penalty of sin, but we are freed from the power of sin and we were not slaves to it any longer. We have no obligation to live according to the flesh. The so then at the first is is important. Since the things in verses 1 through 11 are true, we no longer have any obligation whatsoever to live according to our sinful nature. We don't have time to look at the first 11 verses, but I would highly recommend you go home. Read Romans 8 verses 1 through 11. Read Romans 8 over and over and over again. Because of who we are in Christ, we no longer have any obligation to do what our sinful nature desires. Again, this doesn't mean we don't struggle. We do. But it means in that moment of struggle, there is always the ability to choose what's right. The genuine believer in Christ is never put in a situation where the only choice they have is sin. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13 promises us that there is no temptation overtaken us That we cannot endure because God is faithful and with every temptation will make a way for us to escape. As we seek to invite people next week. Let's remember that regardless of the kind of sin they're living in. Or what kind of sin they have lived in. Jesus can save them. From the power of sin and set them free in a moment. But but it's not just for those out there that we're trying to bring in here. Again, I don't know everyone's spiritual condition in here. But Jesus has the power to save you and set you free from slavery to sin as well. And, and, And let me say, this is, I think, really important. 
Our culture is filled with people who want to be freed from the the penalty of sin. They don't want to go to hell when they die. But they don't have any desire to be set free from the power of sin. They want to live how they want to live and go to heaven when they die. And that's not a deal Jesus gives to anyone. If there is no desire within you to be free from the power of sin, there is no salvation within you. Psalm 32 that I read at the first said David that the Lord made David miserable in his sin. Listen, if I can live in sin and there's no conviction from it, there's no pressing on me from the Lord, that's not because God has made an exception for me. That's not because I have a special deal with God and I like to sin and He likes to forgive and so we work together in that. It's because of one reason. I'm not saved. And you may say, that sounds awful judgy. But if we were to look at Hebrews chapter 12, we would find the author saying that where there is no chastisement for sin... It's because we're illegitimate and not genuinely children of Most High God. Picture it like this. If you go to Walmart today and there's a kid and they're acting up, but it's not your kid. And they're acting up and acting crazy. You're not going to snatch them up and wear their britches out, are you? Why? Not your kid. Doesn't make what they're doing okay. Not your kid. In a similar way, if I can live in sin and God doesn't chastise me for it, It's not because me and God have a special deal. It's because not his kid. It's what God's word teaches. So if there is no desire within you to be free from the power of sin, to live a holy and a righteous life, it's simply because we're not saved. And we must be born again. We must come to Jesus and let him save us not only from the penalty of sin, but from the very power of sin. This is who he is. He is the king who saves. But he is also the king who weeps over lost souls. This isn't in Mark's account. We'll be looking at Luke in just a second. According to one of my commentaries, the road down to Jerusalem descended into a hollow. And the side of the city was again withdrawn from the multitudes because of the intervening bridge. But after a few moments of walking, the path mounted again. And in an instant, the whole city, not just part of it, burst into view. With the Kedron Valley falling below, Jesus saw the holy city as if gloriously rising out of the abyss. Before him spread the temple courts with the great temple tower, all framed by the garden and suburbs of the western plateau behind him. With the whole city before his eyes, the Savior begins to weep. And as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known on this day, this day, even you the conditions of peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus responds to their lostness and their rebellion by weeping. There is a judgment going to fall on the people of Jerusalem at some point in the future. It's a judgment they richly deserve. They have rejected God. Many of these same people who are praising Hosanna today are going to holler crucify him in the coming days. 
That they're going to demand that a, a man named Barabbas, a thief and a murderer, be released and Jesus be crucified. The crowd as a whole is going to say, we have no king but Caesar. Total denial of King Jesus, a total denial of God as the authority over their lives. And as Jesus looks down at this rebellious people and he sees the judgment that's to come, he doesn't look with anger. He looks with sadness and he weeps over them. The word for weep doesn't picture stoically standing there while a tear trickles down his face. Instead, it pictures a deep sob. The Amplified Bible says he wept audibly. Here we find the Son of God nearly overcome with emotion of sadness because of the lostness of people who would reject him and in a few days would call for his death. He weeps over them because judgment is going to fall on them. One of my commentaries described the judgment that would fall on Jerusalem. Here's what he says. By prophetic vision, the Lord saw the proud, unrepentant holy city reduced to a pile of rubble, wet with the blood of his people. Forty years later, this all would come true under Titus' Roman legions. The Jews' resistance was so fierce that Titus finally ordered the besieging legions to encircle the walls of Jerusalem, barricade it, and starve them out. The resulting famine made Jerusalem a graveyard. And finally, when the Jews lacked the strength to bury their dead, they cast them over the walls into the surrounding ravines. Jesus saw all of this in prospect, and he wailed in grief. This is the heart of a new kind of king. Jesus' sorrow indicated his humanity, but it was also a revelation of the heart of God. Fix this in your thoughts. This is how Jesus Christ and God the Father, the blessed Holy Spirit, sorrow over hearts that miss their day and that would miss peace. Namely, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The commentary concludes with a question. As your life stands right now, what does Jesus see in your future? Judgment? Your towers pulled down? Desolation? Let's stand with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. Jesus is the king who weeps over lost souls. Is Jesus weeping over your soul today? If he is, I want you to know he is also the king who brings salvation. While Jesus is the king, to, the king that came to bring salvation, you must intentionally choose to go to King Jesus and receive him and the salvation he brings. There are three aspects to choosing to receive King Jesus and his salvation. You must repent. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. What's the change? The primary change is in what we believe in for our salvation. We must believe the gospel. The sinless life, sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of Jesus. To believe the gospel, to repent and believe, is to say Jesus is the only basis for my salvation. Listen, humans all think they can save themselves. 
Humans all think they can turn over a new leaf. They can be good enough on their own. They can be moral enough on their own. They can better themselves. They can fix it. We must repent of that idolatry and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. Hope in anyone or anything else leaves us under the judgment of God. And if I have repented of my sins, I have repented of my unbelief, and I have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, a natural response is to follow Jesus. Jesus is king. And we are the subjects in his kingdom. Jesus does not follow us. We follow Jesus. He charts the course. And we follow where he leads. All three of these are necessary part of what it means to come to King Jesus and receive everything he has. Have you repented of your self-sufficiency? Have you believed in Christ alone? Does your life show that you follow King Jesus? These are your individual responses that each must make for themselves. You must repent. You must believe. You must follow King Jesus. No one can do it for you. If you have never come to King Jesus for the salvation he offers, I urge you, let today be the day that you're saved from the judgment to come. But for those who are already disciples of Jesus, I would ask, do you know a lost soul for whom King Jesus weeps? If so, what are you going to do about it? Do you weep for that soul as Jesus does? Do you try to bring them to Jesus like the woman at the well who went to get her town? Do you tell them, come and see the man who made such a change in my life? After I pray, the altars will be open for anyone who wants to come forward for any reason. If you need to come to King Jesus and be saved, then this is your chance. And if you need to begin to weep, for a lost soul like Jesus does and commit yourself to doing what you can to reach them. This is your chance. The altars are open and I am going to ask you if you need to receive King Jesus, step out, come down, call upon King Jesus. And if you need to weep for some lost soul like King Jesus does, step out, come down and cry out for him to be merciful to them. Almighty Father, we love you today. You're great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. Open our eyes to see King Jesus. To see his glory. To see his greatness. To see his supremacy. And to see how we must respond to him. Father, there's no negotiations. Repent, believe and follow. That's it. There's no special deals. That's all there is. So, Father, today I pray if there's any here who are trying to negotiate with you, they're trying to 
work out a better deal. They're trying to explain to you why they're good and why they're okay and why they've made changes. Lord, I I pray that your spirit would continue to press upon them and you would not let them get away with that mindset. Give them the blessing you gave David of making them miserable in their sin. Let them never be happy in their sin. Let them be miserable until they cry out to King Jesus to forgive them and to save them. And Father, we who know lost souls for whom King Jesus weeps, let us weep for them as well. Lord, our flesh wants us to believe they're going to be okay for all of these reasons we can list, but your Holy Spirit is not going to allow us to get away with that. He's going to tell us, look at their lives. You see they're lost. It is so evident they don't follow King Jesus. Let us not soothe our own conscience. While they walk happily to hell. Let us weep for them as King Jesus does. Let us labor to reach them as King Jesus did. If they choose to reject Christ and they choose to go to hell. Make them have to leap over our bodies. Kick their feet. Out of our hands that are clinging to their feet. Pleading with them to turn to King Jesus. And make them have to ignore our tears on their behalf. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. The altars are open.